Hello, and welcome to our weekly podcast of Who's Here in the Hamptons. I'm Dan Retiner, your host, broadcasting from my home in the Hamptons, where I have lived for over 55 years. I've written a dozen books about this glorious place, and I've seen it grow through the years from small tourist towns, quaint fishing villages, and a summer playground for high society, to what it is today, a world-class resort for celebrities, artists, musicians, authors, and billionaires. In my podcast, I will bring you interviews with not only these people, but also prominent local people who have helped shape the Hamptons. My guest today is Ricky Kleeman, who uh, you may know from uh, television as an an analyst, which is her most recent career, but she's had numerous careers. She had an early career as an actress, then became a prominent lawyer. She then became a teacher, and now she's on TV. Actually, as an analyst for CBS, for legal matters. And uh, so I'm introducing you to Ricky Kleeman. Hello, Dan. Yes, good to hear from hear you. This um, is great to be with you. Let me, let me begin by asking you to follow along on this career path that we just discussed. Uh, you were born and raised in Chicago. How did you get into acting and where have you acted? Besides just, you know, personally. I got into acting as a a child. I think that I was of the generation where I had those musketeer ears and would watch the Mickey Mouse Club on TV. And all I wanted to do was go into acting. So I started taking lessons uh, in acting and voice in dance from the time uh, I was about four or five years old. Uh, became a theater major at Northwestern, and then went to New York to be an actress uh, and thought I was going to do serious work uh, at places like the public theater or do Shakespeare in the park. And um, one day I went to an audition and there were about 200 women who looked just like me. Uh, As we were looking at the movie, The Godfather, we were all five foot two to five foot 10 Mediterranean types. And I said, I'm going to be on this line for the rest of my life. So I thought it was time to change. What did you, uh, what did you, in your acting career, what was your favorite role and where was it, even if it was regional? I think my favorite role was actually at Northwestern when I played Catherine, which was the Elizabeth Taylor role in the play rather than the movie, Suddenly Last Summer by Tennessee Williams. I think that was probably the pinnacle uh, of um, my acting career in terms of my abilities and really in my joy at being able to tackle that kind of a role. Were your parents supportive or did they think this was a bad idea? My parents were very supportive. I was a late only child. Uh, I was born uh, after almost 18 years of marriage. Uh, after my father returned from World War II and they went through adoption proceedings. And like many other couples at the time they were looking to adopt, my mother became pregnant. So I was told at a young age that as a girl child, I could do anything I wanted. I could become president of the United States. Very few parents gave messaging like that to their kids. So when I wanted to be an actress, I think that they indulged me. So you decided that acting wasn't going to work. What did you do? 
I, I decided it wasn't going to work. And um, probably uh, in answer to your previous question, I think probably my parents at that point were probably relieved. Um, <laughs> I came home to Chicago and I went to see a professor of mine from Northwestern because by that time, I, I think I was about 24 years old after college and after the two years in New York and thought, well, now what am I gonna do? I've wanted to be an actress for 20 years and I really wasn't prepared to do anything else, I thought. And this professor told me that uh, I had done very well in his constitutional law class for undergraduates, and I should think about being a lawyer. I responded to him that girls don't go to law school. And he said to me, no, but women do. And in those four words, um, that professor dramatically and forever changed my life. And I am grateful to him for the rest of my days. So So, did you spend what, about 10 or 15 years in the law or longer? Longer. I had practiced law um, for a total of 19 years um, in Boston uh, after going to law school there. And um, I had an extraordinary opportunity that came out of my law practice because we had cameras in court in Massachusetts, I think, since the early 80s. And by now we're in the mid 90s. And I had been approached by a network that was on cable called Court TV. The the boss of Court TV gave me a call to come down and be a commentator. I had no time because I was trying cases. And I said, I'll give you two days at the beginning of my vacation uh, in 1994. And I got lucky that those two days turned out to be the O.J. Simpson preliminary hearing and I think the rest is history. So I have been in television since 1994. Yes, but well, you also had mentioned uh, teaching. How, how did that fit in? When I was still in Boston, uh, I thought that I really wanted to, in certain ways, give back. And I always thought it was smart to be around younger people and have their minds enrich mine. And at first I became an an adjunct professor. I taught legal writing uh, at Boston University Law School. I wound up also teaching trial advocacy in an intensive course at the Harvard Law School, as well as becoming an adjunct professor at Boston University and later uh, in New York at Columbia uh, University, all in the area of teaching a form of trial practice uh, and in, at Columbia, I used court TV cases and the, um, the course was called trial practice uh, in major current cases. And I continued that work uh, throughout my career by going to different states and lecturing at bar associations, because when I started, there were very few women who were out there to be role models for other women. All my mentors had been men, and I wanted to try to give young women someone that they could look at perhaps and take some knowledge from along the way. So I've always enjoyed teaching along with my legal career, uh, which brings me to my present job, which clearly had my name on it. <laughs> which is? Well, I think that, I, I think that if you look at the careers in total, 
and you look at uh, an acting career plus a legal career as a practicing lawyer, plus a teaching career, that all of those combine to make a better legal analyst on television. And I've been doing that since anchoring at Court TV and now in this incarnation at CBS National News, I've been doing that since 2013. What is, uh, what comes to mind as a particular case that you've talked about on uh, CBS? I think that uh, I can go from the beginning and look at the highlight of my first summer of 13 in working uh, at CBS News and go all the way to the present day and look at the highlights of the moment, because it seems that today there is a legal case a minute. In the summer of 2013, there was a notorious trial up in Boston of a mobster named Whitey Bulger. Whitey Bulger had been a fugitive uh, for many, many years, and he had been captured in Santa Monica, California. He had been brought to Boston, and he was going to go through his trial in that summer of 2013. So I had the ability to go up to Boston, uh, analyze. I'm not a correspondent. I'm a legal analyst. So you'd have a correspondent who would do the report of the day, and I would analyze the evidence, analyze the procedure, and what was going to come up in the future. It was an extraordinary summer. If you look at today, um, I think that these have been some of my most busy months. And if you look at uh, the year of 2021, I began with the Trump second impeachment trial, then of course the Derek Chauvin trial, uh, just having finished Kyle Rittenhouse's trial, the Arbery case. Right now we have Ghislaine Maxwell, as well as uh, Elizabeth Holmes, and finally now Kim Potter, all going to trial at exactly the same time. And I can see what the future brings, uh, if there is going to be a trial, but certainly analysis of the horrendous school shooting in Michigan. So um, I... Uh, have the ability to have a job as long as I continue to work hard because I, unfortunately in our society, crime does not go away. Or, or, or pay sometimes. Or I, pay sometimes. I had, I had a question about Whitey Bulger because it, it seemed to me he was kind of a, uh, a mobster fixer uh, go-to guy who took people out, something like that? I, I would say that um, Whitey Bulger certainly uh, would have been called a mobster uh, or a fixer. He was the head of the Irish mob in the Boston area, who then gained prominence at some point over the Italian mob in Boston. His life and times and his conviction, which involved uh, a racketeering charge, which had underlying crimes of many, many murders. Whitey Bulger has been memorialized, if you want to use that word, in various films, probably the most famous being The Departed. And he's behind bars now? Whitey Bulger went to prison, would have been in prison for the rest of his life. And at some point he was transferred to a different prison and he was murdered within 24 hours of arriving at that prison. Wow. 
by another inmate. Did not know that. But that's not today. Some of the, uh, I have a legal question I want you to analyze to me. What, when did shouting fire in a crowded theater become a right? You cannot shout <laughs> fire in a crowded theater as the saying goes, and it's been part of our jurisprudence for now well over a hundred years. If I looked it up, we might say it's closer to 200 years. Uh, th the idea is that we all have free speech rights and free speech rights mean that the first amendment, which is in fact first, give us the ability to be able to speak our mind and say what we want to say without fear of reprisal, without fear of being prosecuted for speaking uh, our truth, whatever our truth may happen to be. However, the cliche that we all use, which is a legal term of art, is that you can't yell fire in a crowded theater because what you are doing at that point is you are creating a situation which could lead to imminent violence. And if you have a situation that leads to imminent violence, injury, or death, that is not part of free speech. So that phrase certainly has gained a lot of uh, common usage in the recent year, having to do particularly with the events of January 6th. Well, it seems to me that uh, what goes on in the social media is largely the equivalent of that. Well, so social media, uh, I have to say, has become, instead of being what it was intended to be, which was a place of free-flowing ideas, the whole idea of the internet was that it could be the Wild West because out of that would develop great ideas, good ideas, ideas for the benefit of humankind. But what has happened, and of course, this is only my opinion, what's happened in the uh, world of the internet and the world of social media is much of it has become platforms for hate. And uh, hate speech, now we are learning more and more, will not be considered protected speech. Social media has just become very, very dangerous, um, particularly for young people. And it's, it's just unfortunate. Uh, you would like to think, particularly after the pandemic, that we would be better people and we would be nicer to one another. But if you really look at much of social media, unfortunately, the haters rule over those who would spread messages of good cheer. I think I read somewhere that the Supreme Court is fishing for some kind of case that would deal with these, excess, these excesses. Am I right about that? Well, I think what you're dealing with is, is cases trying to come up through the courts, but you're also trying, to, you were also as a society looking at legislators and of course, ultimately the Congress trying to deal with these issues, but it's very thorny because we have to remember the whole purpose of the first amendment is that the government shall enact no law that will infringe on freedom of speech. So this is a, a very difficult area. At one extreme, we have too much hate speech. And at the other extreme, we have cancel culture, where if someone says something that other people think is inappropriate, that they may be canceled forevermore. So at, 
we always see in society that things will go far to one side and then far to the other with the hope that at some point we wind up in the middle. Let me, I will close by my asking you, what do you like about the Hamptons? I love everything about the Hamptons. Um, I, uh, I am at my most peaceful, my most tranquil when I am in the Hamptons. I love, as all people do, I love the idea of walking, which I do and my husband and I do every day that we're out there, unless the weather is so inclement that we can't. There is no light like Hampton's light. There are no beaches like the Hamptons beaches. And we have friends that we have made over the last 25 years in the individual communities of uh, from, I would say mostly from Bridgehampton to West Hampton, since I am in the middle there in Hampton Bays. And these are people who are great people. These are people who have grown up in the Hamptons and people who have family businesses. And I love being their friends. I love having them as my friends. On many a morning, you would find my husband and me having our breakfast at Sip and Soda or the Hampton Maid or driving through the farm country to Estia's. And all each of those three places in the morning for breakfast has its own character. And I'm glad that we are fortunate enough to be considered part of that. I would be happy if I never lived anywhere else. Well, that brings us to a conclusion of this podcast. And this is myself, Dan Rotiner, interviewing Ricky Clayman, and I want to thank you for being on the podcast and, uh, and, and have enjoyed meeting you. As you know, we've been together for a while at times. Thank you, Dan. And there will never be a Thursday night or a Friday morning that I don't go searching madly for Dan's paper. Thank you very much.